0: Yo, how are you doing folks? Welcome to episode 70, the big seven. Oh, we are getting up there in numbers. I cannot wait till we get into triple figures and believe you me, I'm gonna be committed to wearing quadruple figures. Hope it's been a wonderful week. I uh, hope you're enjoying what looks to be. I can see it sneaking in over my shoulder, although we won't say its name, maybe. The sunshine, it's getting warmer. I don't know where you are in the world, but if you are in the UK, we've had three horrible storms that maybe have uh, left you without a garden shed or at least a trampoline. So I hope you're recovering and rebuilding wherever you are and uh, settle down for what's going to be quite an interesting conversation. Uh, it's is third time lucky. We've been trying to get this one together, but we're, uh, we've really worked at it and we've made sure to get it in the diary for this week. So please do enjoy today's guest, who is the first private prescription cannabis patient in the UK, a former trustee for the United Patients Alliance, the lead at Carly's Amnesty, co-founder of the female-led plant education platform, Planted Collective, uh, advisor at PLEAD, the patient-led engagement access, and contributing member of the Global Medical Cannabis Council, They are Carly Jane Barton. How are you doing? I'm good.
1: Thanks, Simpa. Thanks so much for having me on. You're welcome. been a while.
0: <laughs> it has it has we sat down i think uh last year on your channel on the car can channel to, to to discuss things and quite enjoyed that uh it yeah. was a really good conversation and basically since then i've kind of wanted to get you on kind of sneak you on my platform and go right let's talk about everything all of it yeah. because there is just there's just so much to cover here i mean obviously i think we've known of each other for, for several years now in this and 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 crossed paths, uh, I suppose, many different levels throughout this uh, mm-hmm. this fight, this struggle. Um, and I think we've moved, I would say, in different circles, but I would like to hope or think that towards the same ends. Um, so that being said, I think there's a lot of people that maybe don't or... Maybe have a misunderstanding of who you are, or I mean, I myself, I only know what is out in the mainstream, out in, yeah. in the legacy media and what is sort of perpetuated um, and in the public sphere. So I think I really wanted this opportunity to kind of just start from scratch and just yeah. really introduce and go through all of this. So with that in mind, I have a very, very concise series of questions here that I'd like to fly <laughs> okay. through, if you'd be willing. Um, <laughs> cool. And a lot of these are gonna be the, your typical boilerplate, um, standard kind of interview questions, which obviously uh, you'll have had a lot of experience in. Okay. So I suppose, let's, let's get down to the, uh, to the easy ones. Um, how long have you consumed cannabis and why do you consume cannabis?
1: So I, um, <clears throat> I obviously dabbled when I was younger uh, with cannabis like everybody does as a teenager. And I had a few bad experiences like everybody does as a teenager with too many brownies and that kind of put me off. Um, and I I had a series of health problems. So I had, uh, I had a really horrible time when I was 21. Um, I was rushed into a chemo ward in Liverpool with a a blood disorder that's similar to leukemia and lived on that chemo ward for the next 12 months. Um, on, on, you know, just surrounded by people who were really, really suffering with cancer and they were all on chemo. Um, and I was in treatment myself for like 12 months. So I didn't leave the hospital for 12 months. Um, and then I, I got better. And a few years later, that that blood condition triggered a a, a blood clot. Um, and I had a stroke when I was 24. I was just on the couch, just chilling and just randomly had a stroke. It was like the weirdest thing. Um, and I I was left with quite severe damage to my brain, which meant that I was just living in this kind of like pit of pain all the time so every part of my body would uh, would just stab and burn um and i was obviously on opiates for a long time so i was on fentanyl and oromorph and increasing amounts i just kept increasing the fentanyl increasing the morphine um and you know i was living for those six years in a, a cloud of opiates and i just couldn't feel the world anymore I, you know I couldn't engage properly with my friends. I couldn't love, I couldn't feel, I couldn't feel anything emotionally. I was just completely numbed out by these opiates. And, and the opiates weren't even controlling the pain. Like I had, I lived that, at that point in a terrace house that backed on someone else's house. And my neighbor was just complaining all the time about me screaming at night because I couldn't control the pain. Um, and a friend was going on and on and on about cannabis and was saying you know oh I've got this homegrown stuff it's really good you should try it for pain but because I'd had that bad experience I'd kind of had stigma myself and I was in a weird place where I was going I don't want to live anymore and I was googling end of life clinics and I was in a really bad way and I didn't really want anything else to make me feel more like I didn't want to live um but I did have a fuck it moment and uh and went outside and smoked a joint that she'd left for me. And I, I can't even, you know, I I can't even describe the feeling of relief. Um, that was the moment where I realized that I, I, I couldn't feel pain anywhere in my body and I just didn't know what to do with that. I didn't, I just didn't understand how that was physically possible. Um, and so i weaned myself off all of those drugs without the doctor's support with cannabis, cannabis oils and, and help with people from the community. And I met a lot of people who also consume cannabis medicinally. Um, you know, some people from Brighton Cannabis Club, um, you know, some people from the UPA. some, you know, a, a bunch of the community that were sort of geographically close to me and started to learn more about this as a medicine and have consumed, you know, sim- to relieve my symptoms ever since um and i'm in a much better place i can you know i can walk i can get out of bed i can cook my own food up i can you know i can work i you know to to a certain extent um i'm not i'm not better but uh, you know i i live better because of cannabis
0: yeah that's a really really good way of putting it i think and it's something that i think too few people really understand that people are looking at for a panacea, this cure all, this magic pill that's going to stop everything, and it's, it's not. Life is never going to be an absence of anxiety, depression, and pain. It's about learning to live and, and mitigate. As you're saying, I'm, I'm glad that you managed to find it at a time and you had that, that fuck it moment. Because I've met a lot of people that would greatly, greatly benefit almost immediately from the ingestion of cannabis. But again, they have that internalized sort of stigma of, you know, they had that maybe a negative experience or a partner or a friend did, and they kind of saw something in third, third party and kind of went, made a mental note. That's bad. I'll leave that alone. And it's really hard to, to address these kind of core memories or these, these core ideas. Um, So how did, um, how did, did that evolve then from you sort of, getting into as well in the cannabis scene but there's not really a terminology for it the community yeah. or the arena I think it's the widest term I can think of um so how did that kind of evolve into then your work with uh what been the UPA was the first organization you were involved with
1: yeah yeah so uh, I'm I'm quite a people person I, I love to be around people and I love to hear people's stories and I, and I always have and, and before I had my stroke I was working with students I was a lecturer. Um, I used to teach fine art sculpture at Brighton, um, and a lot of that was about narrative and just sitting with the students and really being able to understand their story and what they wanted to say and how they wanted to say it and really work our way through how their use of materials could say that. And, and so uh, when I when I had my stroke and I couldn't do that, I was kind of I was missing that interaction with people, the people's narrative and really trying to understand other people's hearts, I guess. And so, uh, when I had that breakthrough myself with cannabis, and I started to engage with people and and see that there were see, I didn't even know that there was a community of cannabis about around cannabis. I didn't know that was a thing, and and I was kind of introduced to it, and um, I met all of these people with these fascinating stories, and and just this um, just this sort of one sort of thing that cemented them all together, which is that they were living better because of a plant and i really loved that idea and i loved that shared connection that everybody had and, and and i really loved also that the connection with being able to share things like tips and tricks and what strains are helping and how to you know how to extract cleaner oil and and all of that kind of just really heart to heart just sharing between individuals i loved it. it you know I i wanted to do more of that and and, and like you, I also saw that around me, because I'd been in hospitals a lot, I'd lived in hospitals for a long time, had a lot of people around me who weren't well, um, and I had a, a particular friend who, who I was with for the whole year on that chemo ward called Caroline. She was amazing, and unfortunately, I made it out and she didn't. Um, and the one thing that – sorry. <laughs>
0: okay. a bit
1: upset. The one thing that I wished I'd known um, – was that it could have helped her as well. Mm-hmm. Um sorry. It's okay. So um I wanted to pay that forward and I wanted to um I wanted to be part of it. Um for, yeah. for, for everybody as well.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's and, and, and no one will blame you for being emotional over it to yeah. spend that much time in such close quarters and in such a, a unique position as, as, a, as a healthcare institution and yeah. to have that I mean they call it survivor's guilt, survivor's guilt. yeah and for sure. you can see in the body of your work um the I would like to think that you've helped many more people yeah um in similar situations and it is that kind of collective work moving forward that I think is motivated by, by our past. And it's why I'm grateful for you sharing this anecdote and this story. And I think it really does show, um, the motivations behind the actions. Do do you know what I mean? And as I've always said with this, this, this project and this podcast is we're humans at the end of the day, we may stand behind banners and flags and everything that's going on with Ukraine and Russia at the minute. I think it's quite a healthy reminder of how fallible and fragile our reality, our realities really are. Um, so again, thank you for for sharing that for for being vulnerable there, Carly. I, I'm grateful for that.
1: So yeah, thank you. for sure. Yeah. So it was it was kind of just about I, I suppose in, at the beginning of my journey, a lot of people really supported me, and a lot of people really helped me understand this plant and what it could do. And I was like, wow, what? How could we scale that up? How could we become something that could do that for 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 many others, all of these other people? And so that's really what intrigued me about um getting more involved and using my my story and my voice alongside others to try and change the narrative that cannabis is something to be afraid of um i think yeah and, and it, it was a it was a journey you know it was an experience and um, it's a you know it's a really important part of, of why i still do it now i guess
0: yeah, I mean it's one of the the next question actually on my list. I've tried to be quite concise with how I've ordered these, um, <laughs> cool. which is to uh, to ask you sort of how did you become the the first private prescription patient in the UK? Obviously, you're saying you're telling your story. Um, you obviously told it well enough to arrive in a position to to get legitimacy and sort of protection through a, a private prescription.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when the law changed, I I just sat on my couch and I rang. Every pain specialist that I could think of, and there was a couple in particular that I'd seen. At, um, you know, they they weren't um, they weren't protests, but they were more like meetings. You know, kind of like meetings around cannabis that I'd been to, Um, and I knew that a few of them were doctors. So I spent some time researching them, ringing them. A lot of them said, you know, no, you know, we're not set up to do it yet. You know, a lot of the pain specialists I rang that weren't connected to cannabis were absolutely like. It had no idea that, that this was even a thing, you know, the, the sort of comms hadn't reached that point. Um, and then eventually I was hammering the phones and I was in Brighton at the time and I rang somebody in Manchester and he sounded really interested. And he said, oh, you know, would you would you travel to the clinic and and just, you know, have a consultation? And so it was the longest consultation I've ever had. I was in there for about two hours and he went through everything. He went through all of my medical history, all of my test results. You know, he did a physical exam. It was so extreme. You know, you're so, we're so used to these kind of like in and outs with the NHS. Like, you know, go, you go to your specialist, you're in there and you're like, right, shit, I've got 10 minutes, if that. These are the things quick, tell him everything. But with that, it was very, um, it was obviously private, which I've never done before. I didn't realise like to the extent that it was that you could just sit there until you were done. Um, and it took him two hours and he went through everything. And then he said, I'm, I'm happy to prescribe you cannabis, but I don't know what cannabis to prescribe you. Um, so I just had to like literally sit. I knew that Bedrican had uh, a couple of strains. So I, I just scrawled them out on a piece of paper and he copied it out onto the prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had he had some knowledge of cannabis and cannabinoids, but he didn't know anything about, uh, you know, what, he didn't know anything about cultivars, strains. He didn't know anything about what, how I would consume it. He didn't, he didn't know a thing. So, you know, I even brought a vape, like a, an inhaler thing, a little crafty with me and showed him how I, you know, how I would take my medication. And He wrote it on the spot and then, uh, yeah. And then that was that.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, I'm trying have got a light that I can have got a light here as well. I'm trying to stare behind to read these notes. Okay. Um so I suppose this with uh I'm trying to think how which kind of avenue I want to go down here with questioning. Um We'll stick with my structured questions because then this will lead to other questions. I think then. Um, so it's, do you believe that really there is then a difference between the cannabis that you've received on prescription and the cannabis that you were receiving prior to it?
1: Oh yeah. There's a massive difference. The, the, the stuff that I was receiving prior to it prior to being on prescription was a million times better. I lasted about a month on my prescription cannabis Um it, I would say that the quality was pretty bad. Uh, The strains weren't right for me. The terpene profiles weren't what I needed. um, And it was incredibly expensive. And I'd like to say that now, a couple of years down the line, I'd like to say that that was better for people. Uh, But obviously, you know, we speak a lot to patients who are, and I'm sure you do too, who are receiving a private prescription and uh, you know, it's still very hit and miss in terms of the quality. Um, and, you know, at the moment, I, I genuinely believe that patients, you know, are being, are being provided for better by the, whatever you want to call it, market, illicit market, legacy market, whatever, whatever that new word is, you know, that, you know, it's cheaper, it's more, you know, it's more accessible. The quality tends to be better. Um, and you know they often they'll often get it delivered to their door within an hour. You know that kind of service is is there, and and that's why patients are going down that route. So many patients have come back and said, "I can't find strains that help me on the legal market," and so now I'm you know back to being a criminal again, which is which is really sad.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's the criminalization issue. I think is obviously it's it's predominantly the the issue here. I mm. mean we. We have mountains now. If we were able to actually just look beyond our own fallible little borders and kind of accept the thousands of papers that have already been uh, researched in regions around the world that show the efficacy of cannabis toward hundreds of conditions. We also have safety evidence base that is wider than I think any other substance or natural compound on the planet. There's Nobody has consumed anything en masse for decades like we have cannabis and had Mm -hmm. so little um definable and actual um negative consequences obviously there are some uh, casual links that they've been looking at for for decades obviously in europe we have an issue around tobacco sort of muddy in the waters around dependency and psychosis um but when you allow for the, for these in the figures you you extrapolate out that cannabis yeah is one of the safest things in 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 the world, um, really, ultimately, that is, might sound hyperbolic to a lot of people. When you really look at it, the overdose level for it is is higher than a lot of things. Uh, in terms of the what it does in for negative positive ratio, even if you abuse cannabis, you are still gaining some benefit from it in terms of supplementation of your endocannabinoid system, prophylactic yeah. suppression of even things like cancer. We're we're really starting to understand the wider remit of this. So, kind of with with that in mind. The we'll just so we'll jump to can card and then come back to the other projects, I think, because we're flowing that way. Um, so obviously, then other projects have, have were created, but at the minute, there is, there is can card, and so this is a system that is supposed to. I'm sorry, if this sounds so sort of crude in the way that I'm I'm literally just pulling it out of my arse as we go. Um, provide to authorities evidence that the individual that is in possession. Of cannabis would meet the criteria to qualify for a prescription, but for various means, currently, do not.
1: Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, if what the the card is the difference, or the prescription, then is the difference, isn't it? Ultimately, it's it's the permission when we really look at it. It's it's you are allowed. You we're being allowed to consume it or not allowed to consume it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So. It, how do how do we widen that or how is Cancard's what is I'm really buttering this question, sorry.
1: <laughs> it's okay.
0: Um what is Cancard's aim and remit with within then that sphere to to widen that access?
1: Well, I guess uh, Cancard, you know, can uh, I am kind of I'm like running an organization that I don't think should need to exist. Um, and I agree with you that, that that needs to be widened. And I think, you know, everybody deserves to not be criminalized for choosing to consume a plant for sure, for whatever reason that is, you know, for, you know, even, even in alcohol harm reduction, you know, some people drink two bottles of red wine on a Friday night when they get off work because they're stressed. Like, they're not going to get arrested for that. But some, some people might have a vape instead, you know, and, and get that same amount of stress relief Albeit without poisoning their body. And, you know, there is there is an implication there for them legally. And I I don't I don't I can't get my head out. If an alien landed on this planet and said, what is the go with this? And you tried to explain it to him, it just would not make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all, prohibition. Um and I agree with that. But I also think that we are in you know, in the UK, we are too for want of a better word, we are too bloody British. And this isn't going to happen with a flick of a switch. We're just so fucking British that we can't, that, you know, there's no boldness. There's no like, come on, let's try something new. There's no appetite to to take the pressure off normal everyday people and that, and that fear of criminalization or the implications that come with that, like, you know, CRB checks or losing their job or losing their social housing or whatever it is there's no uh, there's no driver to do that and i think and i think that's shit to be honest and i don't want it to be that way but that is the way it is and in other countries when we look at the same sort of resistance medical came first and that and that sort of set the path of oh okay so this isn't as scary as we thought it was actually it's helping my nyan and her arthritis or actually it's helping you know my brother and his ms or actually you know steve down the road you know whatever so it's kind of like it it normalized it to the point where where it allowed recreational to come to the forefront because there wasn't that sort of like terror terror of this people running around i don't know what they think is going to happen people running around naked painting themselves yellow or whatever you know there's that you know that is genuinely what they think is going to happen if we go recreational but i think you know in other countries when you look at that model and you look at where the fear point was and you look at the fact that they switched to medical the fear levels dropped the stigma dropped we normalized and then everyone started associating cannabis with medicine and not associating cannabis with people being naked and running down the street so i think you know we have, to, we have to look at where we are and the systems that unfortunately rule the country and think is recreational going to happen without medical coming first. And I don't genuinely believe that it will, because I just think that, you know, I'm an idealist at the best of times, but I think I, as much as I wish that to happen, I don't think it will until we've normalized and and until people start thinking in the back of their head, oh med you know, this is medicine, it's safe, all of those words to replace the inherent conditioning that is this is a drug, it's scary, the 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 big psychosis sort of word, you know, it's kind of like switching it up. It's like a, it's like a it's been like a rebrand for other countries. And I think, you know, in order to get the British politicians on board, that's unfortunately what needs to happen here quicker please if possible
0: yeah yeah well there's a there's a lot to unpack there so uh, let me formulate what i was going to respond here with so then okay. i agree with the what we've seen of the the pathway and we've seen an acceleration of it so you have some form of medical allowance compassionate access some discretion created in the law whether it be de facto or de jure decriminalisation then leading to something like California's prop 215. Mm-hmm. And then from that, we see a system collapse either because of corporate greed or because of individuals desire to not be criminalized. So one of the narratives I'm seeing emerge in the UK that is worrisome to me. And I worry about with this rebranding of cannabis is that if we move from one fabricated narrative to another without first transiting, transiting through truth, we're going to end up in another problem. And so I've been saying this to wherever I'm present, whether it be the CIC or other organizations in the UK, is that I agree there will always have to be legitimate prescribable access. Uh, there will always be people who cannot choose and pick their own uh, medications or make their own choices, To even if they want to consider themselves an adult consumer and still get benefit from it and know it's benefiting from them. They should have that choice of identity. And the narrative that I'm seeing formulate is that the medical side is worried the, the adult side is going to hamper their industry in terms of we're seeing in Canada, for example, research collapse. You're seeing mm. then com- companies transition from being uh, medical producers into being uh, so called recreational producers. I'm using a language I wouldn't use just for ease of, of conversation right now. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're following the money, basically. And then on the other side of it is whereas people were using the medical system for legal protection, they suddenly go, well, I can get better access at the dispensary down the road. I can grow better at home. So yeah. they then leave the medical system. They may nevertheless still get a uh, therapeutic benefit from cannabis. And I think these conflations and these attempts at snapshotting the statistics on this, and then selling that to industry is causing us unbelievable headaches in Europe. So the law's already moved as, as we know in November, 2018, yeah. three prescriptions have gone on the NHS and effectively they were bargaining tools that were given to the gods that be to move the, the system forward and then consequently we're looking at what 20 to thirty thousand I think is probably quite a high estimate of private prescription patients in the UK. in fact I think that's way too high yeah maybe I'm high. mixing up your statistics with just theirs. Over,
1: just over 12,
0: 10, 12 I think 12 12 I think is yeah. the most recent um that number I think is what I'm cutting out sign ups as well I read. Sorry, there's too many numbers in my head. The, um, I, think,
1: I think that it, and, and there was a statistic that came out about, I think just before Christmas that said that 71% of prescription um, or prescribed patients didn't continue after three months on their prescription.
0: It's a narrative um, I'm seeing a lot of is people get, yeah. here's my piece of paper and here's my fancy tub. Yeah. It's that weed. It's this weed. It's this. Oh, I know it's out with date, officer, but like I'm waiting for the new one, and you know what it's like, and uh, and it's all just become this. I I seek truth. I seek genuine natured. Expressions of humanity. I want to meet people as they are and who they are. That's why I've started this. And so I have not participated in any of this and was maybe even quite critical of yourself in, in the, the start of this, and we'll, we'll go into that shortly. Um, and, and I'm of any system that is anything beyond just going, no, fuck it, end the war. I understand, obviously, steps have to to occur, but I really dislike this idea of then, oh, we'll have 12 months or 18 months if everyone just says this lie or we say this lie and we pass around the script to each other and those that know are protected and those that don't are prosecuted. And I feel that there is this, not just two-tier, but this multi-layered system that this, the more you know, the safer you can be but that information is now being privatized. It's then become profitable. I'm not going to name any institutions, but there are certain uh, companies in Europe that obviously go around accruing data set and then mm-hmm. selling that to business for extreme profit yeah. while not actually ending up helping the end user. So I agree that medical needs to come first, um, but I don't think either will move forward unless we, we have that truthful conversation about an, a cannabis market that looks like an alcohol market, frankly.
1: I agree with you. I just, I just cannot, I just can't see it happening. You know, when you speak to the MPs, I suppose there's like, I don't know, there's like the the six major MPs, isn't there, that are like really interested in getting this and bless them. They've worked quite hard to try and get it talked about, but there's, there is just a shut off and, You know, weirdly enough, as someone who's a member of the Green Party, I, you know, I've seen that, you know, Labour be really dismissive about about cannabis and actually the Tories are pushing it and that's because they see it as some kind of like gravy train, right? Um, It's all about the money. Um, And, you know, as as horrific as that is, you know, maybe the Tories will will make a move on it, but then are we going to end up in a situation where it just becomes another commodity? It just becomes another... Thing to walk around and sell you know I've been to so many events where I thought oh okay something's happening but you know hear these people talk and when you get when you know and I'm sure you've been to some before as well when you you know people get up on stage and then they start talking about this plant like it's you know a flower or like it's you know I don't know oil or gas and it's just like every bit of me shrivels at that point because this plant is so much more than than a commodity, um, but you know, I I don't I don't have the answers. I've got a very optimistic viewpoint, probably annoyingly optimistic. Um, but I you know I'm not sure where we go from here. Um, but I can only hope that there is an element of control on the pharmaceuticalisation of cannabis, and a greater um, understanding, just generally as a society, about the power of this plant um and a reduction in fear is what i want because that's you know why i do do the work that i do is because i i hate to see people in fear and i know and i know that you're uh, you know you 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 prefer to see people be like no no this is you know fuck it like i'm gonna do this anyway um oh, but, but politely well, though you know politely, oh yeah yeah, politely, so, so it, yeah. I, and i get and i get that and i get that and and you know i know a lot of people that 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 that, that is totally in them they're like do you know what you know, the law doesn't, you know, fuck the law, you know, I'm going to do this anyway, this is my body, and all of that, but then, you know, you speak to people who are uh, you know, in wheelchairs, who are really battered down, who have got, who are also carers, who have got young children, who are in social housing, who've got absolutely fuck all to their name, and they're in pain, and the last thing they need is any kind of fear of arrest, of uh, you know, of raids of whatever, and there's there's certain people in in that that, you know, that the fear will will impact their illness, and that's another thing is that we know that stress impacts significantly on the parasympathetic nervous system and the central nervous system. We know that that creates problems with chronic illness, um, and the fear is something that I really wanted to address, which is. Part of why I do what I do because I just hate to see people who are already suffering, suffering needlessly on top.
0: So that's quite a good way to segue back to my earlier question and catch up with where we were before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose we'll, we'll just we'll jump into the UP a bit now because we have to move through that to ask the questions about Carly's amnesty.
1: Okay.
0: Um, so 2017, Parliament Square. We're all stood there. It's the UPA Tea Party with uh, Labour MP Paul Flynn. Yeah. Um, and it's before the Elizabeth Price Bill was called the Elizabeth Price Bill, but there was this this medical access bill. And actually, I quite agree with the wording of it. I haven't got the exact wording. I probably should have put it up on my bloody screen, but it basically stated um, that those which identify and need access to cannabis would be given it. Mm -hmm. There was no constraints on the language about restrictions. We were speaking ourselves in quite a a joyous sort of feverish way of of self-identification, of grow your own, of compassion collectives. We were talking about like buyers clubs, like they had in, in America, compassion clubs, you know, this was sort of the height of the UK CSC and the the community and of a kind of social clubs and this network of people really going, okay, we, we get this, we get this There are people that are vulnerable, that are frail, that are in pain, that can't grow, that can't access, but we can, and we make money from what we do illicitly. So we can help offset. And there was such a, it was like the peak, I would guess. We were approaching the peak of the, the UK activism scene, I would say, or the UK community and advocacy, because yeah. everybody respected everybody in some way. There were disagreements and there was whatever else, but everyone went, well, you still want the weed? You want weed? 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 Cool, move forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we still all had that that unifier.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then things sort of changed from that point the discussions that were occurring behind closed doors versus the statements that were being made to the public and the conversations that were going on in the community, there was suddenly a fear that we were not going to be brought along for the ride. I mean, the, the, the language that I believed was used that medical will open the door and we'll hold it open for you. And very much the feeling of, the resentment bitterness and i guess the the start of the fracturing of the uk cannabis uh community occurred with the creation of, the, of that bill and this then I, the, the upa then splintered off into several different directions um mm-hmm. and obviously there's a lot of confusion in the community a lot of people there's grand conspiracy theories as there is with all of these things i'm not going to go into any any time to to really name them. Anyone with any knowledge of these can go and find them on any forum or any place on the internet because everything is forever logged. Mm -hmm. Um, But from, I guess, your own perspective, could you maybe help set the record straight or I guess uh, provide a record? Because I, I don't know. I was, I was there, but I saw what I saw, but I still don't know what the hell happened. It just kind of, we were stood there and we marched. And then a few months later, we were locked out
1: i mean some of it i don't know to be honest i I mean i can tell you what i know but a lot of it i mean that i mean that that event i i know some stuff went down afterwards but that was i was already on the train at that point because i i have dystonia which means that my body kind of locks into weird uh weird shapes which is like weird you know weird dancing but but it kind of hurt um and so i you know i had really significant pain so I was there for I remember uh, the Paul Flynn came out and Tonya came out and we had cake and tea and then I was on the train back to Brighton and I think from memory people were texting me saying something's gone down but I don't really know what happened there I think from my point of view there was already a lot of fractions within the groups um, and a lot of it was so before my time that I didn't really understand why people were upset with each other or you know it was a lot of he said she said you know a lot of or oh, a few months ago he said this on the internet and I didn't really know everybody at that point point, um, so I didn't really know what was going on um, but the I mean I think you know the EPA you know Clark Bless him, is a wonderful guy and he puts so much work into the UPA despite his own health um, limitations. And he, he, does, he, he does really suffer. Um, and, you know, I tried my best to help support him in, in that. Um, and unfortunately, there was just a few members of, uh, I guess they'd be directors, or our director in particular, who was not didn't have the best of intentions. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but I think, um, I think a lot of the problems stemmed from him and him taking, uh, a, an email list that essentially was everybody's email addresses for the UPA newsletter. Um, and that, that's something I, you know, I never had access to, but I assume it was on some kind of a drive, a shared drive or something. Um, and I believe that this person then went and set up his own, I don't even know what it was going to be, a kind of advocacy group or kind of sort of sidestep or, mm-hmm. or something um, with with one of the members of uh the Center for Medicinal Cannabis and he took that list and started marketing to the people that had just signed up for the UPA list. Um, so uh yeah so that there was a there was a bit of drama there. I found out late and tried to support Clark who was clearly going through a lot and clearly wasn't well and had clearly been taken advantage of and um and I did a bit of research and said, look, we need to, you know, this needs reporting to the, to the I think it was the IOPC So we made an official report and we uh, we spoke with the person and we asked him to delete all of the data and to apologize. Uh, and that was kind of fractions within the sort of upper management. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I walked away at that point because, you know, that my health was not good. Um, and I didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes or, or who had what intentions. I knew that Clark had the best of intentions, but I also didn't necessarily want to work with people who would do that, who would, you know, who would take people's personal information uh, given for a specific reason and then try and take it for your own good or your own sort of building up your own network or whatever it was, whatever those intentions were, they didn't feel nice. Um, and it was a bad thing to do. Um, and I, and I kind of just needed to step back from all of that. And so I went off and did my own thing. Um, and you know, Clark, bless him, has had a couple of years off. I believe he is planning on coming back. Um, he's getting well He's getting a bit more well and he's had a little boy he's two now um and so so yeah so I I you know I wish I wish the majority of those people mainly Clark all the best um but you know it was something that I you know that's not the way I work I'm not I'm not a, you know I don't like devious people and I don't like people taking advantage of other people and that was not what I signed up for. I kind of signed up to hand out some leaflets and and talk to people about how you know cannabis might help them. I, I didn't you know I didn't sign up for for all of that backhanded nonsense. So I think you know at that point the UPA kind of split off, and I don't really know what a lot of the argy bargy was between some of the groups. Um, I know that a lot of people from the different arms of the community didn't didn't like me for whatever reason because I was in the UPA and that meant something that was historic, but I, I don't I, you know, I still don't know what a lot of that is
0: Yeah, thank you first of all for for your honesty there and and, um, and yeah, setting the record straight as much as you, you can from your perspective uh, I suppose for continuity and it's all facts so I can speak of the event of the day so <clears throat> I'm not going to speak of the reasons why the actions occurred, but I can speak directly of the actions, knowing that I'm legally safe there. I'm always having to be mindful these days with everything I do. Always try to have the number, especially moving forward. Um, Um, The late Jeff Ditchfield was struck by a gentleman whose name I know, but I don't think I should name. Not for any punch. Punched. Um and that occurred, and then I think later on, and this it was at the same day was the incident uh, when Callie Blackwell was arrested,
1: and yeah. so yes. no, there was guess. a
0: whole forever and I think that the emotion of that day, with mm. this kind of sense of defeat, that when the the bill was formed and when the UPA disbanded, people felt the sense of betrayal that we had this or this this illusion, if nothing else, this feeling of community, and then this day occurred. And then from that, everything disappeared. I agree, there was some really quite contentious things happening, even self self-sabotage. self-sabotagery, however well, we you want to describe that, yeah. things occurring inside the groups. There was obviously then a lot of rumors of paid informants. There was some very, very underhanded things done by some activists in the scene where they set up conferences to then basically do presentations on how others were corrupted and put horrible allegations out into the state realm of public awareness there was a lot of just crazy shit went down for it for a period of time and i think that the consequences of that have, like i said left a lot of people really distrusting so i think when others went on to form other projects especially as you say of uh i think even though i could use alleged etc i'm not then going to name the director yeah. it, that we're talking about i think that's pretty uh self-explanatory um if anyone wants to look at that um but if that event hadn't occurred, do you think that then the UPA would have disbanded?
1: Um, probably not. I mean, I think that it, it was always a tricky organisation to run because we all, so so we were all just volunteers. Like there was, I don't know, probably like ten volunteers, and everybody was living with a chronic illness themselves. And then volunteering to support thousands of people that had chronic illness and that were living in a shit situation and it felt really crap. And so you you know, that's the thing about volunteer organizations. I mean, I think that even if you owned like a like a library bus or something and and you and you relied heavily on volunteers, it would be tricky enough because you're asking people to to give up their time and they might wake up and go, oh, I don't fancy this, you know, today, or I'm going to go for lunch with them all and more, something, you know, something else. But when you're, when you're dealing with the pressures of speaking to people and these stories and, you know, their narratives, which are heartbreaking at best, and you're also living with your own limitations and your own shit life and your own, you know, struggles with your health it, you know, it, it really wears you down. And so I, I, I don't know, is, is, is the, um, is the answer, but I know that it was, it was tricky. It, you know, it was tricky to run any event because we didn't know who was going to be well enough. We didn't know, you know, who is anyone going to be able to drive the banners to that, to do that leaflet drop because somebody might've had a seizure or, you know, so it was, it was always, it was always very tricky. Um, and I'm always really surprised that the 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 amount of work that got done got done because you know with that situation it you know it was a bit of a crazy thing I'm not sure if the EPA would have disbanded I guess I guess it was set up to to try and change things and and something was changed but it wasn't the right change so I think ideally the EPA might have stayed together and supported the community through the dis- disaster of that change and, and sort of moved to try and make things better. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess we'll, we'll never know. Um, but yeah, I think, I think a, lot, a lot of people that were volunteers like me at that point were learning their lessons about you know, who, who to trust and, and how to work with people safely. And, uh, and that was a lesson that everybody learned really quickly after that.
0: Mm. Yeah, I can imagine so. And I think, uh, unfortunately, that event has left a legacy Um, that, again, I guess myself, I'll hold my my hand up there, has probably played a part in kind of not necessarily perpetuating, but every now and then remembering. So you, you went from there to then form Carly's Amnesty, which was then, I guess, heavily criticized from certain corners of the community, again, for fear of data protection, who's allowed to know what, um, yeah. and that I think was, was one of the main, if not the main contention against the concept. I mean, can you, can you tell us about Carly's Amnesty and sort of what it was set up for?
1: Yeah. So I suppose it was just like a, it was just like, what can I do with a shit situation? That's one thing I suppose as a creative, um, and previously I was a, you know, an artist and I taught art. and And one of the things that I always used to used to do a lecture and used to do a lot of work on is, is, you know, when, when you get, thrown shit what are you gonna make out of it and i guess every bit of what i've made in life not just around cannabis has been you know you you delivered a lump of really smelly shit why what are you gonna you know what are you gonna do with this shit you know make something out of it and um And so i had my prescription and, you know, I I talked a little bit about the the quality was bad and it, it, you know, it wasn't great. And it cost me 1500 quid for one month supply. It's the most expensive cannabis I think uh, I've ever bought anyway. And, um, and it was rubbish anyway. And, uh, you know, I couldn't, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not rich. I'm a disabled woman on universal credit still. And, um, I couldn't afford that, you know, that will 1500 quid was my savings. I, you know, was sort of even away and, uh, you know, I did one month and then I thought, right, this is shit. <laughs> uh, we've had all of that sort of like big press and everybody's going exciting, people can get it, can get cannabis now on private prescription. And there were lots of people sort of behind me in the queue sort of, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do the same. And I was like, hang on a minute. This isn't, this is not what it's cut out to be. And so what I did was I I went to the police station. I planted planted some seeds and I went to the police station and I basically said, this is a copy of my prescription. This is how much it's cost. This is what is in my bank account. Nothing. Um, You know, a doctor, a really eminent pain specialist who's been practicing for 20 years, thinks that this is the best medicine for me and I cannot afford it. So I'm going to plant these these small amount of plants and I'm going to grow them. And, and, and I told them exactly where my plants were and the, the address and everything. And I kind of had an idea that that could be a solution, you know, maybe in the interim, while things were being sorted out, we could have that kind of like amnesty on patients who, uh, who couldn't afford the private script, but wanted to be able to lovingly grow their own medicine. Um, and you know with hindsight it was it was a quite it was incredibly optimistic and um and a little bit pie in the sky um and uh the the police didn't know i walked in and the police just didn't know what to do they 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 stood there and nobody has ever walked into the station and said i've got cannabis plants growing at this this address like we don't know what to do and i and i was like well why don't you just why don't we work on this idea together? Maybe there's some other people in the city or in the country that this could help. And um, and I set up a, a web page with a friend who had, I had nothing. Um, a web page with a friend who hosted the site and uh, let me. I think he I remember he let me fifty quid to host the site. And we got this thing up. And I said, oh, you know, if anybody in this position, you know, let's vote with our feet. How many people would want to do this? How many people would want to say, you know, it's almost like. A license to grow or a sort of freedom to grow how many people could that could that cover uh and anyway the, you know the police came around uh about a month later and my babies were kind of this big poor little babies and um and she she knocked at the door she came in and I, I knew she was there for my plants and she sat on the couch she had a cup of tea with me uh and then she she was really upset she she was like tearing up she was getting upset about the thought of because i was explaining to her you know this is what i do you know i i was just really open i was like sod it you know like these are my vapes this is what i do you know i showed her some videos of what happens when i go into dystonic storm i was like this is this is how it helps i was like educate um and she said look i am here to take your plants but i i I wish i wasn't like today is the hardest day for me i I don't want to do this um she went out to the car and she got some evidence bags that were like, they were like brown. So my neighbors couldn't see, but what she didn't realize was my neighbors were all on oil because they all had arthritis or back pain or something. So the neighbors weren't bothered, but uh, she went and got these like, uh, like less conspic- like inconspicuous bags. And she, she pulled my plants out. It's heartbreaking, pull my plants out and put them in the bags. And then she said, I'm going to leave you with the pots and your, and your, your tent and everything. And I, and I was like, well, th- these are my seeds. As soon as you plant them, I'm going to, You know, as soon as you go, I'm gonna plant these seeds. Which I did. And she said, Right, well, hopefully I won't be back. And and she left and and I immediately planted some more seeds or germinated some seeds that day. Um, but the thing that, you know, and that and that kind of like I, I suppose it was that was another shit, that that was another turd. But the one thing that I that I didn't think about. I guess, and I'd only thought about in that moment was how does this impact like your average copper, like your copper that's in it for the for the good, good reasons or like you know, they they've got good intentions for being in that job, you know, she was really upset. And I and I felt for her, I was like, I'll make you a cup of tea. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. I was kind of the comforter in that situation, even though she was taking my plants away. And I thought, you know what? Maybe the police want some change here uh and that's when i started engaging and and engaging about grow your own but also about possession and then when uh you know the virus hit i was uh you know i i actually went through a divorce and i i was living it, i was homeless for a while and then i lived in a, a little basement flat you know really uh really tricky place and the only thing i knew how to do was to work or to talk to people to try and make something and and when I started speaking to police about how they felt going around to people's addresses and doing this, um, I realized that there was a a kind of loophole with possession that we could at least start with. And that's where CanCard was born.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So suppose we we've, we've briefly touched. You know, <laughs> we've, a bit. We're, I think we're back, we're back on track. Though. I think we've managed to put all okay. this together. So yeah, we, we chronologically, I think we've, we've covered things. We've done quite well there. So then, can you tell us about Cancard?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so, so Cancard kind of came to life in this basement flat, and I, you know, I didn't have much else to do. I was, I wasn't very well either, and um, I had some contacts. And police kept introducing me to more police, sort of higher up the chain. And I just kept having cups of tea in lockdown with these, with these, with these police. And and the more I spoke to them, the more I saw that they were really receptive to some kind of collaborative work. So. I put a, a working group together and um and that that consisted of from the very, very top head of the National Police Youth Council right down to some bobbies and in between there are some different uh different kind of levels and different specialisms. Uh and you know, we agreed that there was a there was like Simon Kempton, the police federation rep would say he would love to be able to let people to, to let people continue to medicate if he had something to hang his hat on. Um that these people were medicinal consumers mm-hmm. so what we did was we worked up can card together me me and and particularly for police members but the whole group together and we spoke to some mps um we decided that what we could do is create a discretionary tool uh, for the patient and for them mm-hmm. so that if you know if they get stopped they could produce something that says you know i've I've already evidence that I have a med- medical condition. I'm 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 eligible for a private prescription. I can't afford one, you know. This is why I'm self sourcing. Um, and you know, it's a it's a tiny sliver of, you know, it's a, the babyest of steps that we could have even imagined. But it was at least our step. Um, and so so yeah. So we launched on November of last year um and and yeah and we've been going ever since i think we have although that the live card numbers is different because we're going through renewals at the moment but signed up as in like register for interest and they've done their id checks and stuff i think there's 50 50k now uh but not not you know not all of them have active cards and some of them are renewing from last year so it's a bit of a thing on the numbers but yeah but it's been going really well and the stock results are good and the police are are asking for more and more training which is exhausting um but this week in particular so so I'm now doing intense police training uh, two days a week um and some of them have come back and asked for more specific training on on certain things on things like uh, inhalers and, and, and around social housing around smell complaints and things like that so we've donated a lot of equipment to police to then go uh, around and, and offer them an, an inhaler rather than offering them a, a you know a trajectory to an eviction notice for example so that's something that we've been that we've been working on as well um so we're a year down the line now and, and the stock results are really good and it's working um it's not enough i don't think it's enough I don't think it covers everyone. I don't think it's necessarily fair. It's not, it's not really what, what I'd like to see the UK doing right now, but, but it, it's a tiny baby step towards some level of acceptance and towards some reduction of fear. Okay, yeah, no, I, I get that.
0: Um, I guess now comes a bit of a gritty bit. These are the questions I've correlated from uh, some of the darker corners of Reddit and forums across the internet, and the dreaded uh, Facebook, which has become just a cesspool of uh, of commentary, really. In a lot of ways, I will say that with a little bit of anger. The fact that I am so heavily shadow banned on Facebook, I just don't can't stand it as a platform. Um, but yeah, so basically, some of the questions that I've seen that came up uh, sort of again and again was the classic one of. We, if it's now fifty thousand times twenty quid a card, I can't do that math fast enough off the top of my head. But that's a large number, so people are then speculating and going, "Well, where's the money? Where's the money?" Yeah. You know, you know what people like to, to, um, well, every People are just curious, I guess, if nothing else. So, cool. Definitely my look. civil duty and asking you, asking you, "Where's the money? No. Where's the money? Show me the money!"
1: Oh yeah, I'd love to see, I'd love to see the money, but unfortunately, there isn't any. So. So, um, so we get charged ten pounds for every ID check we do. So, the, the so and and the card and the postage and everything. So we end up with around. And for a start, as those, not not all of those fifty thousand people have paid. They've just some of them are just on the trajectory. So we end up with per per person when you when you pay for the card and postage and all that. Uh, so we end up with about I think it's just just shy of eight pounds per person. Um, and with that, we need to run our servers, which are under the strictest security we could possibly have. Even I need to make a, an FOI request to, to get any kind of data, and I get redacted data from that. There's only one data controller, um, and we, have, we spend a fortune on a server which is shared with a portion of the NHS server, it's, so it's tight. Um, we also run a 24 uh, 7 police helpline. So that's there for the police to, in the event of a stop, they can call for advice, they can report a stop, they can speak to us about anything that's going on, they can verify that the card is real because we had a, a few issues with fake cards. So operating a 24 7 call centre is incredibly expensive. Uh, On top of that, we also need to run a 24-7 legal helpline. We do that through telephone. That's 24 hours a day. Also, we run a WhatsApp service for legal support, so that's extra. Um, So then we have the website costs, uh, the customer service costs, and uh, and, and all of the support that comes around that, and things like our software that we need to talk to patients and email packages and all of that stuff. So, you know, CanCard... Is not profitable. I, I, as a as a person who is unwell, I I haven't taken away. I've never taken a wage. I've never taken a penny out of CanCard. Um, I probably never will see it being profitable. Um, there, you know, it's run behind the scenes by three just beautiful, beautiful, amazing women, some of which you've met, Simpa. um and they are on just as they are on just a standard wage, just like you can put anybody on who is working customer service. Um, so there's that cost as well. So it pretty much evens out that it's just running itself without any need for additional funding. Although personally I did get into a little bit of debt last year trying to keep things going myself, which was a bit crap because I've never had an overdraft or a credit card in my life. So so that was new. Um but I I kind of didn't want to let it fall. Uh, so that was that was something that I myself um so yeah so the answer is i i somebody please tell me where the money is because it would be great to uh you know i suppose you know i think the other thing that people don't understand is when you are in a position where you have a lot of important data um which is you know we care a lot about is that we get offers from a lot of people who have got very bad intentions. And I'm sure it's no surprise to hear that, and I don't think I'm breaking any rules, that we've been approached on several occasions with very, very large amounts of eye-wateringly large amounts of money to, you know, to, to... hand over that database or do something with it or you know sell a bit of pen card or or whatever it was that they that they wanted like money that would mean that i you know personally could up and run um and i you know i've never i would never ever compromise because this isn't to me this isn't a job it's not a job anyway because i don't get paid but it's not a job it's it's part of my risk i feel a responsibility to help and to continue to help and and not to put anybody at risk unnecessarily mm-hmm. so so yeah so where's the money i guess you know ask ask the people with money where their money is because there isn't any here no
0: i think in you so thank you first firstly you've been so concise uh, so uh yeah concise and open with about everything and okay. concise sorry what i mean there. concise means to small I probably
1: wasn't that concise because I think that means short and I'm yeah, not, I'm there, not there, very short sure when I answer questions there, am I
0: there was a word there of pulling, trying to pull but I can't tug at it right now but somebody correct me in the comments below whatever it was that I was thinking of there uh, but anyway thank you for sort of uh, for going over that because I think that really does give an overview of obviously it is a business entity it, it employs people it that's what I guess people are forgetting. it's not an entire profit-driven entity. And that's not me defending you. That's just to remind people of the nature of business. Um, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, you've kind of touched on the next question I was going to ask, which is people are obviously n- not nervous, but I, I guess anxious again, because of data. And the question mm-hmm. that keeps coming up is what is the CanCard's GDPR policy?
1: So we we have a GDPR policy available online for anyone that wants to see it, but it's actually we actually paid for that to be more significantly sort of developed. Mm-hmm. So we've paid, uh, you know, we've paid solicitors and addition, and added additional things that we don't actually need above and beyond GDPR. So you know, we we never share anybody's data with with anybody. You know, it's pretty much just signing up to the newsletter, and that all of our data is stored on a secure server. There is like i touched on before there's one data controller one of the girls and if i need to know anything from that so say if i needed for police training if i needed to know how many stops did we have in these six months in norwich i'd have to i, I don't even have access to that data um, myself um i would have to email the data controller who would then get it off the server and then i often get redacted information as well because i don't want things you know we 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 all use a company uh, email account and i and i'm a little bit nervous particularly after you know the stuff that went on with the upa which is something that i didn't i wouldn't have even thought to do um i i'm really conscious about what we're saying in emails as well like what if somebody hacked or i mean i don't even know because i don't know how to hack but I suppose the, the implication, you know, there could be somebody that might hack into our emails and then see something personal about someone. So, so the, the agreement as well between the team is that none of that information is shared over email. None of it is put in writing. A lot of it is redacted. Or, or I'm just given the detail I need to know. So for example, if I was asking that question, there were this many stops and, you know, whatever. Uh, so I'm just given the, 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 uh, the facts rather than the detail. Yeah, um, And if I needed to contact a patient for whatever reason, there's also another mechanism in there about how, how I do that. And um, and all of that data is handled sensitively and not even between, you know, not even between the team, do we mm-hmm. mention names or talk about anything that that might be sensitive.
0: Okay. And I suppose the, I think it's the last question on this section I've oh, no, got two more. Um, with regard to the data, mm-hmm. how do you or have you been approached by the police or any authority of institution to pressure you or in any which way um, put you in a position where they would have access to that data?
1: No, no, they can't, they can't have access to that data. And they they wouldn't because that, you know, a lot of the police that we deal with, they're kind of on our side. And, you know, I don't, I can't ever imagine that happening. The only people that we've been approached by for that in terms of, that data in terms of getting that data would be big pharmaceutical companies with an interest in selling their products to people that at the moment are consuming by self-sourcing and big, big companies that, yeah.
0: So is, can, will CanCard or can you make the commitment that CanCard kind of putting in the spot here with this one, um, that it will, okay. it, it won't become a direct marketing mechanism for peer to play What does that mean? Um, so like the, the biggest bidder then that approaches then you use your uh, email list to directly market products or services from third parties. No,
1: absolutely not. No, we don't share any data with third parties and we don't sell any data. You know, we've been offered ridiculous amounts of cash. I won't say how much, but a lot of money for that. And it's absolutely... It, it's absolutely not an option. It's not an option. Do
0: you have, uh, I was going to call it, it's probably the wrong term, but it sounds cool in my head, so I'm going to say it, a okay. zero-day zero policy, which for anyone that doesn't understand what I'm saying, which is everyone, because I'm making this up as I go, if the war ends, what happens to that data? If all of a sudden there's no reason, if all the, the drug war entirely is just over, there is no mechanism for criminalization for cannabis, mm-hmm. what happens to, to the, that data set?
1: Um, I'm not sure, I'd have to have a look at the policy, but I'm not even sure that I saw that on our data policy and I don't know what would happen if the world ended to data. Well, what I do know is that we have the ability to destroy any data that is captured quite quickly and immediately from our servers. Um, So I guess the zero day policy would be to completely dispose of that data. Okay. Um, I guess, and I, I don't know what would happen in the event of a world war, but there's a, once there's no need for that data, you know, and there, and there are certain elements of the data, which is routinely destroyed when we don't need it anymore. So we might ask a few questions to get your, your application fulfilled in. And then that data, de- you know, all of the data that we don't need is deleted. Yeah. So we don't even hold that kind of data. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's pretty much just nail, names and email addresses that we hold and, and, and the CAN card number to verify. So, in the event of a complete de facto prohibition change, it, we'd, we'd hit the button.
0: Yeah, that's that's good to know. It's re- reassuring personally, as well as I guess to probably a great deal of the, uh, the wider community. Because as we, we're moving into an age where, I mean, I'm still nervous that there's my MySpace pictures floating around. You know, there's going to be some I think god, everyone's god-, a I think god- awful top to angle. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, can't imagine. It's, we've always, always got to be mindful of these things. Uh, right, so where are we? Last Kankar question, I think. Um, that is, yeah, um, Northern Ireland and Scotland, obviously. the Wales and England are kind of unified in the sense that they have 43 constabularies, Uh, whereas I think Northern Ireland and Scotland, Scotland has one cop, effectively. And uh, from what I hear from my colleagues and friends north of the border, they're uh, a little bit behind the times. So how is Cancard finding uh, being and operating in those regions?
1: So Northern Ireland, we haven't managed to make a dent in. Um, Anybody who signs up from Northern Ireland is made aware that we don't have a we don't have an agreement with them like we do the 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 other police forces um but we do still have great stock results um in northern ireland even though there's there's only a few cards in circulation in scotland stock results have been brilliant in the um in the major cities what it looks like from because I had a look into this because we had a meeting with Ronnie Cohen a few weeks ago, um, or or one of the girls did Kirsty and she, and he asked for some stats so she uh, she had to put together a bit of a map thing so so what we saw was that in the in the sort of major cities in South Scotland South, uh, South Scotland a word a term yeah. I suppose it is South yeah. the, the southern area of Scotland in the cities the stock results are great. Uh, we've got a bit of a presence because we're working with some of the harm reduction um, organisations up there, and particularly Crew. Big shout out to them. They're doing great stuff. Um, stop results are fab. The further north we get, Highlands and sort of the more rural areas, uh, we, we're seeing, we're seeing some, some police be dismissive. We're not seeing arrests and confiscations necessarily, but what we're seeing is that the reports are that the police are being less friendly i suppose would be the term um and it's trickier so we're seeing them call in more to validate we're seeing more questions from them about where they've got the cannabis from whereas when we look at the major cities a lot of them don't need to use the extra services they're just stopped and then let go So there is an issue with the Highlands in Scotland, which we're aware of. Um, And more recently, there was a a case where a patient had um, his prescription cannabis removed and he was uh, understandably distraught about that. Um, So it seems that the rural areas, the very tips of Scotland, Shetland and Highlands aren't taking their notes from the rest of Scotland. So this is something that we are looking to address. So we had several meetings last week with Police Scotland um, and we're having some introductions to some of the more rural um, constabularies further up the country next week. Uh, and we also spoke to Ronnie Cohen and some of the, uh, some of the members of parliament for Scotland. I think that they spoke in uh, Holyrood about um, Cancard the other day. Um, and so the idea is to try and bring them up to date. It's really difficult because each in England, the police training is is much better, and there's a lot more communication between constabularies. So, for example, I might do a police training in one area in uh, Norfolk uh, to cover the main branches and the the drug expert witnesses, and then and then he'll tell like four of his mates. So, what we'll then do is we'll get like the surrounding areas of the north of Norfolk emailing saying we thought that you know we've heard the training's great can we jump on as well to get the intensive training um and that happens every time i do one of these training days um but when we do similar stuff in scotland there's not there doesn't seem to be that communication between the major cities the police scotland and the more rural areas which is strange because in in england and wales there is that there is that sort of like exchange of information between contabilities that, that border each other. Um, and there seems to be a bit of a disconnect up there which needs addressing for sure because there are people in, that, in those rural areas that don't deserve to be treated any differently.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think uh, I'm quite happy with that answer. I'm sure my guest uh, audience will be as well. Um, so Cancard's policy, I guess, to grow your own?
1: Yes, Well, that's kind of how it started. So when I started Carly's Amnesty, it was all about grow your own. And I'm, you know, I, I love growing. I love my plants. I love the process and I love the idea that it's a very different energy kind of nurturing this life that then becomes something which nurtures you. And there's that sort of symbiotic relationship between you and this plant that you've been talking to for months. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, and the whole idea of, you know, giving it water and sustenance and then it giving you sustenance is just like a really beautiful, very. it's a very different energy to then getting a packet of pills that is called some name that you can't pronounce that's got a side effects list as long as your body that you don't necessarily have any connection to with this plant you've got to connection. And I see that growing your own is very much more than, you know, it's very much more than just providing for yourself. It's it, there's a different there's a different energy of wellness in that cycle. I'd love I would love to open the doors to any everybody to be able to grow their own and have that experience of of interacting with this plant that then becomes your medicine, because I, you know, I truly believe it's one of the most beautiful things ever. And mm-hmm. um, so so our can card policy is, yeah, we we support grow your own. we want there to be grow your own um, when i I suppose when I made the sort of switch from Carly's amnesty to Cancard, there was there was this kind of recognition point that grow your own wasn't going to happen before we addressed the, you know the, the fact that people were still getting arrested for a little bit a couple of grams of cannabis on the street was how were we going to transition from that to this mm. um, model so Cancard, I suppose addressed a lower a sort of lower uh, point in the hopes that we can build up to this this sort of bigger thing um unfortunately you know we i did i, I pushed and pushed and pushed i had meetings with the home office and and advisors and and um and priti patel was 100 percent against the idea obviously no um, and i'm um, sure yeah i'm sure there'll be no surprises there and and actually did so i don't know if it was her directly or some of her advisors did try and do a bit of sabotage on the, you know, when we, when we were initially setting up Ken Card, fortunately the police held tight and stuck with what they'd said. And, and that was great. But I think that as much as I'd love to say, everybody grow their own and, and, and go for it. I think there's a lot of people who, who could be potentially at risk. And so I, as much as I'd love to share that, that sort of like sentiment and, and that experience, I've also been on the phone to a mum who has epilepsy at five in the morning as the police were coming through a door and the kids were in bed. And I've heard the destruction and the, I witnessed some of, some of that fallout, which I don't want to get upset again, which is, uh, which is horrible. Um, so yeah, so I suppose my line on Grow Your Own is, uh, I, I, want, I want that to happen now. I wanted that to happen yesterday. I think we're a way off with the current government, particularly uh, with our home secretary.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well answered. Well answered. Uh, I suppose we'll find a kind of can card question. There's a, a case for all the names in public record. I'm not going to record it. It is quite humorous in that it is. Uh, what's the concept? Um, nominative determinism that your name determines your job. But I think this can extend to then, I guess, a a stance or a a moment. So there's an individual in the Isle of Wight that is using Cancard and hasn't put in a a plea so far. The case was due to be read at the start of this month. Uh, It'd be in February. I don't know when I'm actually putting this out. I think this will be still in February. Um, But the case was then adjourned. Do we have any further um, knowledge of what is occurring?
1: So the stuff that I can't say about that case, because I've been asked by the family not to say the specifics, which is tricky. Um, I'd love to tell you the ins and outs because it's a particularly complicated case. It's not a very straightforward case of just somebody with possession. Uh, there are a lot of factors and a lot of history, um, in particular with this individual and the police force and um, and it, it, you know, it's messy. Um, so we are allowing our solicitors the space to, to process that and see what arguments can be made. Um, I hope for his sake and the family that, that, that things turn out okay, but I am aware that also there are complicating factors uh, which are not around cannabis uh, that could mean that he is looked at differently um so i don't think i've said anything too specific there. hopefully i'm sorry about being vague but um if i i when when somebody asks me not to to say something I, I really i really hold that to to my heart so so yeah so um so the update is it's it's still ongoing um we sh- we should see a result in a couple of weeks hopefully um and I, I you know i'm hoping that they 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 have got a really really lovely female solicitor uh, which we've provided for them. And um, and I'm really hoping that she gets it over the line and that the family can have a bit of a break because they've had a really good time.
0: Yeah. So... No, I think you answered that very well. Uh, You spoke in generalities, but give a good enough of an overview. Uh, I will actually make a note to plug my own blog, which uh, talks about this one of the last week in Weed series, uh, which is currently on pause. Um, So I'll include that in the bio below, folks. Um, And obviously, we'll update you guys as soon as we have uh, knowledge of that in the public arena. Um, Is this the first case with Cancard in an active courtroom?
1: Yes. Yeah. So Cancard's really, I mean, Cancard's really supposed to stop um it going near a court which is you know which has happened for all of the other cases you know Mm -hmm. so it's worked um but in this particular case that like i said there are some complicating factors with the, with some history so uh i think that that has clouded the judgment of the police but i also think that there are have been some uh, discriminatory Discrimination has happened within that case as well, on behalf of the police to the patient, which is something that um, which is really uncomfortable to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, first the first one that, that has been near a, a court case. Thankfully, every every other one has been resolved on the street without any further action.
0: All right, cool, cool. Um, so then, obviously, if you, you help. Uh, does Cancard have a policy, or have you thought about mitigation? So obviously, if then it moves into active uh, criminal proceedings, mm-hmm. um, and then the court, if the then are not they would then take it to be that for all there is the discretion of Cancard, according to the law, they are in possession of uh, Schedule One Class B uh, mm-hmm. narcotic. Yeah. So, as you then move to prosecution uh to being prosecuted sorry you then moving into mitigation so does cancard have sort of a policy or a, a standard approach for, mi- for mitigating
1: not necessarily a standard approach um but we have flexi uh documents so the solicitors macro solicitors are brilliant and they have some things ready to go in that eventuality but i think because mitigating this would be difficult without knowing the, the details of the case so we get a lot of people who have got previous convictions and through no fault of their own you know they've been medicating for their ms for 30 years so they might have three previous uh convictions or stops or or cautions or something and so everything that need that every you know i suppose that case needs to be built on a on a really individual level and we although we haven't had a need for it what we do have is a lot of prepared documents that sit, that sit with MacRel that would apply to a few different scenarios that we've sort of worked out, that we've worked up. But even then, the case might come along, which is completely sits out of that realm of mitigation because of other circumstances. So we might even need to completely rewrite those documents again. Thankfully, we haven't had that. But there's, a, there's like a weird sort of like, because, you know, it's like a weird kind of like you want a test case to happen but well, you don't want to put somebody through that emotional turmoil to, that means that they have to go through all of, all of that horrific experience and the stress and the waiting and the court delays and all of that. You don't yeah. imagine putting somebody really poorly through that as much as it would be great to have a test case, which smashes this out of the water and sets some kind of precedent in a really sort of like brilliant public way with a lot of support you know, is it worth the putting somebody through that? At the moment, we haven't thankfully been in that position, but it's something that's in the back of my mind is if something does come up and um, a patient is taken to court, like what, what support will that person need around them? And, that, and, and that's going to be significant support mm. and not just legal support, I think, as well.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, it's, it's good to know that that's... Conceptually being sort of prepared for. Yeah. Um. I guess then I wanted to ask you about Outlaw and the culmination of the work of sort of Seed our Future and Weed the Undersigned in trying to highlight and find legal, I don't want to call them loopholes because, well, I suppose mm-hmm. they are loopholes, but also fallibilities within what is now contradictions of the law. So yeah. we have the 2001 Misuse of Drug mm-hmm. Regulations, Schedule 2 cannabis for which is cannabis-based medical products for human consumption. And mm-hmm. then you've got Schedule 1, Class B uh, cannabis, which is an illicit street drug. Um, but what they're trying to do at the minute is figure out ways to nullify or provide defences that mean that prosecution isn't possible. Yeah. So I think as we're starting to see, obviously we've had outlaw on recently there's contention, I guess, and still speculation as to the, the legitimacy of the full claims made but as is the same I guess with yourself or the same with anything is there's always questions for everything and we live in an ever uncertain reality I'm trying to take things as much of face value when I'm speaking to people so therefore I'm going to speak of this as if that is my reality now I've clarified that I can move forward so basically do you think there's there is scope there that as I've advocated for many years that ultimately a true end to the war gives every patient access tomorrow because instead of having the fear and the restriction and I've met people and I've known people that themselves have, have helped themselves and then have gone on to try and help mainly parents yeah. and have stubbornly watched their own birth giver just degenerate because they don't want to be a criminal. This mere concept of yeah, being yeah. a criminal, not even so much... They're not even worried about uh, the specifics of, oh, I'll get raided or I'll get stopped on the street or whatever. Their morality says yeah. they would be a bad person. There's this coupling that still... And I feel that without a rational conversation to remove the for moralizing, there's still going to be a lot of patients that are still going to feel criminals that I'm a protect- oh, yeah. I'm protected. I've got the piece of paper that protects me, but I still have to act yeah. like a criminal. So with that, do you think there would be scope long-term for there to be collaborative work if there was, um, because it, obviously without those sort of legal solicitors that he's working with and Michael, themselves are working with, you think there could be collective work? Because I think they could learn a lot from each other. I think ultimately yeah. it doesn't matter for use at this point if we can find legal ways to... It's also giving the police an out ultimately. That's what Cancord did. The cops know they've got to follow orders effectively. So they stop you. You're in possession. Is that cannabis? Shit. He's admitted it's cannabis. I've got to deal with you now. Whereas if, say, you can go, is that cannabis? No. There's certain discretions, there's certain things again. Go back, guys. Well, i included below. Look at the outlaw episode. There's certain uh ways you can interact with the police that then allow them to understand that they can follow a certain script and walk away from that situation. You're providing them a way to save face. Yeah. But I think the yeah, collaborative uh, effort between even just some of the legal entities would be massively yeah. beneficial for the the end consumer, regardless of why they consume.
1: Totally. I mean, I never rule out collaborative stuff. You know, I sp- spoke to uh, to Phil from WTU and Guy from CDR Future and JJ yesterday uh, about something that we might work on together. And you know, I've spoken to Outlaw before about potentially doing some stuff together. It's just not, you know, it's not happened yet. But it's not it's never going to rule it out. I. Um, I think that I I personally just want to thank every person who you know outlaw and all of the other groups some of them you know even those that have, you know that are going on the internet saying that 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 I'm not a good person or whatever you know whatever it is that they're doing and that it doesn't matter how they're trying to make a change or in what way they're putting their energy into making a change every single ounce of that energy will we will come together and will form some kind of change. And it, you know, it doesn't really matter who gets over the line, what idea changes things, what, you know, who's had an argument with someone on Facebook, who's called somebody names, you know, all of that, it, just zoom out and think about the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. None of that matters. None of that matters. This, this is what matters. And, and, and I really celebrate everybody's work um, no matter what they've got to say about mine, because I think that's the only way to positively pour energy into this space. And, and, and despite the fact that the community's is fractured, um, I, I still like to send out love to, to everybody because I, I think, God, do you know what? Thank you for getting up this morning and for spending however many hours it was that you were in pain or that you could have been out with your mates or you could have been doing something else thank you for spending this time sitting here and talking about this issue and sharing online and and having a conversation with someone in the shop because every single bit of that interaction is going to matter it's going to stop it's going to change the stigma that we've built up and it doesn't matter whether you know outlaw tomorrow might have a test case and it might completely change the whole scene and i hope so i really hope so um and i wish him all the best of luck and you know equally some, one of the other groups might have an have an aha and and change something and that would be brilliant. I would take my hat off to them in a second.
0: Yeah. That's a brilliant answer. No, I like that. I like that. And yeah, I I agree. It's if to use the analogy of we're sort of trying to break down a mountain and for all some will remove boulders, some will remove handfuls of sand. Yeah. The the efforts are nevertheless meaningful. And totally. the fact the more hands, the, the lighter the work. And what I think a lot of people seem to keep forgetting is the ball is moving. It's not a case of convincing the system to end the war and somehow either legalize, decriminalize, deschedule cannabis. They're going to do something like that anyway. Now is the point where we collaborate, we unify, and we create community standards. We create best business practice. We create our own regulations and systems to present to that authoritative uh institution when it becomes time to form those models otherwise they're going to create ever more restrictive systems either through ignorance or through greed or through a desire for social control or classism or racism or any of your old classic uh governmental motivators and i think that for all yeah we have histories of squabbles here and there for all again you and i sat having this conversation now a few years ago to a lot of people probably myself included would have been like that ain't happening but times change people evolve stances change truth mm-hmm. comes to light over time and in some small way i think we've we we've, we've brought that to light um in this this podcast and i do hope that people can see this and understand that we are in some ways closer than ever, ever. but actually the more divided we are, the, the harder it is to cross that that last inch. We, we've done the entirety of the track. The line is there. We yeah. just have to pick each other up and carry each other across that line. And then yeah. there is no race anymore. There is no urgency. We get to sit free, liberated from the oppressor, from this fear of persecution and this constant idea. I mean, I still get it every time a blue light goes off a siren, you know, when you even park yeah. or whatever, and it just suddenly goes, Ooh, and it's, the feeling that goes through you is terrifying. And nine yeah. times out of 10, if not more, I'm not doing anything goddamn wrong totally, because yeah, I can be in a position of that. And I think yeah. of then the limitations that that puts on the individual. Whereas, yeah, I think that collaborative effort. And so even I think the way you spoke of that, I think hopefully should give hope to, um, to a lot of the naysayers and detractors that there is space and there is always, sorry, space for development and conversation and for, Replanning and reshaping.
1: I agree. I hope there's more of that to come, especially this year. Isn't it supposed to be the year of love or something astrologically? Somebody told me that. Somebody told me that the other day, and I was like, "Oh, brilliant! That sounds so much better."
0: (laughs) I'm I'm down for that. I'm down for that. If we can uh, we can get that on the go. Yeah, it's we need it. It's been a tough few years, and like I said, we were really moving. And then 2018, the law change happened, and the realities that a lot of us were were promised or were prophesizing didn't come to fruition. Yeah. And I think that juxtaposed to the reality we now li- live in leaves a lot of people feeling bitter and angry.
1: I agree. And, and, I don't and, blame them.
0: Yeah, and so they're looking for an enemy, and the enemy isn't within folks. The enemy is is out there, and it is not even they're not even enemies through a desire they're not sat there formulated and educated choosing to come against us because they have rational arguments they are there because we've always done it this way whereas if we can build alternative models we can show them a new way and again it's the same with the police give them a way to back down they can't suddenly go oh skunk and psychosis and oh well actually you know what give it to your grand. you know what i mean the kids yeah give it on the nhs like they certainly can't the optics of that the, the legacy media will bury them so they've yeah. got to play their game and so yeah i think we're we are closer than ever in a lot of ways
1: i hope so i really hope so i've got a good feeling about this year
0: yeah me too i've got my fingers crossed <laughs> Let's see. Uh, i've only got a few more actually here there's probably a few i'm going to to. to cut out a few because of time i'm mindful of that um can card and driving yes Is another subject uh have you had anything or any conversations education because obviously this is something that people with uh full prescriptions are still obviously falling foul of at the minute
1: yeah i mean it's a really tricky one so we work with i work with a there's an impairment lead for three forces. She works across three forces. She's on our police working group, and she is really interested in some of the new research that's come out, coming out around impairment of cannabis and driving, which is great because I want there to be interest. At the moment, obviously, we all know. People that might not know, you know, the the tests for THC uh, roadside and blood um, can produce a positive result even if you've consumed several days before um and so it isn't an accurate test of impairment at the moment not like you would breathalyze if you had alcohol and they can tell Mm -hmm. how many how impaired you are there is no technology at the moment available to discern whether you're impaired or not Um, but you know i know if i got in my car in the morning and i'd been you know i i'd had a dystonic episode the night before and i was vaping i know that i would test positive and be dragged in and um and asking for blood tests so you know it, it's tricky because the law is the law and the police won't really bend on driving because they would from their point of view it's kind of like if you're driving on drugs you're putting other people at risk whereas if you you know if you're possessing cannabis in the street you, you know you, you're not risking anybody's lives so so there is that kind of attitude within the police But there is a, a i bolted on to the police train in a section about Driving and a section about the new research, particularly the the new research that we've just seen come to light recently, which suggests that uh, there is a four hour um, period of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Simper
0: intoxication.
1: Intoxication. I was going to say inebriation, mm. but I feel like that's a bit more like alcohol. I suppose it's the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Intoxication, um, and then it kind of peters off. Um, the issue with that is when you're talking edibles that might be a different thing. Yeah. Uh, that, was in, that was inhaled cannabis. And, and that study was going, I think that study lasted for about three years. It was a really significant study. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk a little bit about that and I've talked to the impairment lead about, about this. And I think that the, the main issue that I can see at the moment is that police will, will come round to it when you present that idea that you know, they might be criminalising people who aren't in, intoxicated. They can get that. But what they don't have is the equipment to be able to detect whether somebody's intoxicated or not because so, we're not, they're not provided with that, that kind of technology. Mm-hmm. So I know people who I would never get in a car with if they'd smoked mm-hmm. or vaped. I know people, I would just be like, absolutely not. But I also know people who I would never get in a car with unless they'd vaped. Yeah. So mm-hmm. even for me, it's kind of like that, you know, when where do we draw the line of responsibility? On my pres- prescription it says drive if you feel safe to do so on my cannabis prescription, just like it said on my fentanyl patches and my oromorph bottles, drive if you- don't drive unless you feel safe to do so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how can you police whether somebody feels like they're safe to do so? It's a really funny line, it's a grey line. Um, and at the moment they only have the the equipment to make those snap decisions based on if you have trace amounts of THC in your system, which you could have consumed days ago, which is really inappropriate, really, really inappropriate.
0: Yeah, and as far as I'm aware, I have put in and been blocked from two different police forces' freedom of information requests as to what the road traffic tests are testing for in terms of the metabolite because there is still a persistent rumor in the country that CBD is going to be triggering these things if they're looking for a a branch metabolite and not specific metabolites. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the same way as you touched on with edibles, yeah, an edible breaks down to 11-hydroxy-delta-9, which is... yeah. That's gonna kick you. That's that's gonna kick you. I know people that would as veterans as dab rigs that have written off cars because they've got into a car three, four hours, and I'm fine, I'm absolutely fine. Yeah, once, once the body's kind of caught up with it, they are just doof. Yeah. And it is it's again it's individual responsibility. That statement you made, I that quintessential, beautiful. That you're saying some people you would and some people you wouldn't if they had or hadn't. I think that sums it up perfectly because some people. The, they would then risk seizure, they would then risk a, a certain, even with concentration and other factors yeah. that actually need to be brought in. I think, and one, one of the things I would maybe like to see advocated for, and maybe Kankar could be one of the avenues to do it. Is the requirement for impairment under the Road Traffic Act 2015 to be brought back in? Yeah. So that then they can go, okay, we've detected THC. Now from that point, before moving to bloods in an arbitrary level, do a field sobriety test. Mm-hmm. Can they perform simple basic tasks? How is yeah. their, I don't know, rapid, uh, rapid eye movement, etc You could build a body of tests that would then determine that uh, on a scale of relative safety of the individual. There could then obviously be other aggravating factors. Were they consuming yeah. at the time? Is their product in the vehicle? Is there X Y Z, I said, and then that builds different levels, but ultimately it has to prove because otherwise, again, even passive consumption these days, you could be in a location and, and somebody sparks up a joint and before you know it, you've consumed enough because it is that low. Not only is it yeah, that low of a really figure, yep. your body loves THC. Yeah. You put THC in it, but there's a reason we hold on it. You put cocaine or something like that, it's out in 48 hours, it's gone. Your yeah. body stores THC and other cannabinoids in the follicles of your hair, in your nails, It in your fat cells, it stores it everywhere. So you could consume heavily on a weekend, go on a Wednesday, go to the gym, get in the car off, off to the gym on Wednesday and fail the test. Yeah. because you've reactivated those cannabinoids in your system it's the science we know this this side of the fence and it's so frustrating that the individuals tasked with enforcing this and those tasked with creating the rules that they enforce are either willfully or naive ing- willfully ignorant or naive to it
1: yeah
0: okay well, it's good to know that again it's part of the education okay. and I think it's <laughs> yeah. all all moving towards that yeah um, I suppose there's two things that really surprised me. I kind of Googled and I ended up looking at uh, pictures to kind of move on to two different things. So recently I saw you, you were at the, the Brits. How did how how did that occur?
1: Oh, so uh, a friend of mine who actually, you know, she lives in Portugal now, bless her. She's uh, she's brilliant. She helped me. She donated a few hours of her time when I first set up CanCard um, to, to sort of project manage a bit because I have a gammy brain and, and and a lot of it goes <laughs> a lot of my organization is a bit wonky and uh so she she came on and she helped me at the beginning when she had a little bit of time but she also does a bit of the the sort of backstage management for the gigs and things and she she's worked for the brits fit for years as a consultant and um somebody dropped out last minute and so she messaged me and said you know do you think you could make it and i was like shit you know what i'm, I'm really not feeling great but when else do you get, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when else does somebody go, do you want to go to the Brits? Mm. I thought but it was quite funny because I think I'm just too old for it because we got there and they were reading out the nominations uh, on, the, you know, on the screen and I was thinking, I don't know any of these people. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know where any of these nomine- nominees are. Um, but, you know, it was a good experience. We had a, we had a good time.
0: Oh, nice, nice. Um, what's the other one that uh, yeah, Richard Branson was it was another one. Um, so what's, what's yeah. the origins of that one?
1: So there was a there was a global medical cannabis group that was set up unbeknownst to me. Uh, by um a couple of people who wanted to run a farm. One of them was Richard Branson's nephew Jack. Um and they were they were English, but lived in Jamaica. And the idea was so Richard Branson's Island is kind of like uh, I still can't believe I've actually been. But <laughs> Richard Branson's Island is kind of like it's it's quite big, and there's like a a separate part of it that's like a big series of buildings. And what he does is he lets people go there for conferences about issues that he thinks need to be sorted out. So they do one about sea pollution, they do one about uh, all kinds of things. They do one about poverty, one about Africa, you know, all different kinds of issues and everyone gets together and they make these sort of global sort of presentations and ideas and country swap ideas. That's essentially what it is. Okay. And I got a call out of the blue um, from, from, a, from a friend who actually helped me do my first ever press release. And he, he was like, somebody's, somebody's on the phone and they're saying that somebody called me and said I'm looking for Carly as the first patient in the UK we're looking for representatives we're going to take a couple of people from each country and we're looking for a patient in the UK to come and represent the patients in the UK and they and they and it you go to this island and you, you you have a conference and you talk about your experiences and stuff um and my friend said, and he says that it's on Richard Branson's Island. And I was like, fuck off. <laughs> That's a total scam. It was a total scam. I think we didn't <laughs> even ring them back until the next day. And they said, oh, you know, we, you know we, we we, were looking for a patient in the UK. We see that you've just got a prescription. You know, we found you via this like weird link on this website. And they'd called my friend. Um, and, and it was really real. Um, and the idea was that. There were representatives of industry, doctors, scientists, amazing scientists like Dr. Sue Sisley, who I adore. Uh, who's done some great work with patients with PTSD. She's amazing. She's blind and she takes bouncer, her, her guide dog, everywhere. She's great. Um, there was there were some LPs there, so some some farmers, um, researchers, uh, even Russo, a lot of harm reduction people from. So they so they took some people from Canada, some people from Australia, some patient, and a few different people like researchers and they all got together and we went there and we each did a presentation and we just talked about how things could change and the idea was then that we would the group would get some funding uh, or pitch for some funding from virgin charity or charity arm um, and we'd continue the work and unfortunately that that never happened we didn't get the funding and the work wasn't continued but i did meet some incredible people including sue and ethan um, and some patients from Australia that I stay in touch with and some, some lovely people but I think that on that island I was the only one who had to uh, the, n- <laughs> the night before I flew over um, my washing machine had broken and I couldn't afford like the 40 quid it was or something to get it repaired so I was washing my clothes in the laundrette the night before I flew over um, to Richard Branson's island which I just thought was hilarious at the time I still do um, but yeah, I mean, it was an experience. Um, I didn't speak to him for long. I had a quick chat about the fact that I was a patient and how cannabis helped me, but he wasn't really there for the main event, it was just the group, and he kind of just was walking around with his dogs most of the time. So, so yeah, I did I did get him in a cannabis medicine hoodie, and that was about it.
0: Well done for, for tying him down for that. Yeah. Um, all right, cool, cool. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting that it's it's weird to then think of I don't know people on that scale having these conversations, and yet we're still not moving forward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you, if actual billionaires going right. Give me the people of the world that know this shit. Put them on my private island. We're gonna solve yeah. this. Yeah, and that's not moving things forward. It kind of shows you the scale of, I guess, the opposition that we're up against here.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think know. that you know there was a lot of talk, particularly from the other countries, about blocks that. That pharmaceutical companies had put in the way of their progress and their research, particularly the researchers, were very, very loud about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was kind. Of, it was nice to, although you know, it was nice to 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 be on an island because um, I've not had a holiday in years. But it was nice to hear that it wasn't just us. That were, that were falling behind. But it was also nice that, that these people were speaking out against those kind of practices and those kind of practices that, re, that restrict research, that stop people from being able to run pilots and stuff. And you kind of realise that it's the same everywhere. Nobody's quite got it right. Um, I, I wish we had got the funding because, you know, even though Branson Richard Branson is not part of those groups, so he wouldn't have continued with the group. He was, you know, we were just on his island. but. I think that there were some great minds in there and some really great passion. And we could have helped each other as, as, you know, as companions. Um, So, so yeah, I suppose, I suppose it was a shame that that never pulled off.
0: I, I am a firm believer in everything that has happened has had to happen the way it has for us to be where we are so then yeah i think that's it's cool like you said to have the experience and to to kind of put i guess on the bucket list same with the brits uh so <laughs> yeah absolutely nice and uh, i suppose we're down to my f- final question the last question i ask uh, everybody these days which is yeah. uh what does the future hold for you but
1: for, for me or for cannabis uh, for you for me um, I guess at some point I kind of always thought I would return to teaching art. <laughs> but for so many years that's not happened. So I don't know. Um, I guess once all of this is sorted, I'd like to return to making art and talking about art and doing that because that's something that I don't dedicate enough time to. So as soon as I feel like I'm, I'm not being useful in the way that I, that I really feel like I should be, as, as somebody sort of in this space, then I think that I'll probably return to being an art teacher like I should have been all along.
0: Nice. Well, if, well uh, I've got a good concept here. When I was in Massachusetts, I went to, uh, I can't remember what he called it, but it was an event by an artist, and he had all these easels. So there was twelve of us, and you come and you get stoned, and there's dab rigs, and basically everyone gets really big. Some people eat edibles, and he does nice. a drawing class, and it was an alien being abducted, and you had to oh, pay, 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 paint on the easel, and everyone's different versions of them, and the vibe of it for the evening was was wonderful. Um, so I can, that's yeah,
1: right. Oh, so there might be a com- there might be a combo there, Simba. That's what you're saying to me. Yeah, yeah. You can I like females. that idea. I really like that idea.
0: Excellent. I look forward to uh, to getting an email. Let me know when the art class is on. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, like I said, in some small way, this promotes unity and a wider conversation and discourse, because as I've been trying to say for a while now, I don't believe there are really any enemies within. There may be some misguided individuals, a lot of angry people, and a lot of people that are maybe misinformed and some people that are deliberately weaponized against others. We've seen that. I again, hold my hand up and have been a victim and a part, not necessarily a party to that. I've been a weaponized against others in the past, which is why I'm again, trying to be very mindful with these conversations. So with that in mind, folks, if you've enjoyed this, please do, you know, like share, subscribe, all the other usual things and get it out there. Um, so yeah, Carly, thank you. Really You're appreciate so it. You're so welcome.
1: You're so welcome Simpa. Right.
0: It's been a pleasure. I'll uh, do a bit of housekeeping and then uh, I'll let you, let you get off. Amazing. Right, folks. Uh, yeah, like I said, if you enjoyed that, do check. Oh, I've got a, a, change, a note list. Sorry, let's check this one. Oh yeah, new, you can rate on Spotify and other podcast platforms. Uh, so please do give the Simple Life podcast a little bit of a, a rating. Uh, help me boost my analytics because we are a little bit shadow and restricted on most platforms because we tend to use words like cannabis and drugs. And uh, I swear quite a bit, you know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, do like, share, subscribe on YouTube and all socials help the podcast grow. Check us out on Patreon uh, waiting for less than a cup of coffee a week. You can help me keep the lights on and pay for this little project. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'd love to see you in the coming weeks. We've got Dana Larson coming up. They are a wonderful. Mr. Tommy Chong, and potentially one of those six MPs Carly was uh, mentioning before, uh, which I'm going to tell her about once I uh, say bye to you guys. All right. (laughs) Peace and love, folks. Uh,
1: I'll leave you with that little tidbit and speak to you later.